Welcome to Where Work Meets Life. I'm Dr. Laura, and I'm really excited to bring you an episode today that is near and dear to my heart, Calling All Men to Action. Let's End Sexual Exploitation and Trafficking. I'm honored about this topic because I think it is a topic we cannot hide from. It impacts our world. It impacts our cities. It impacts our nieces, daughters, friends, sons, neighbors. It's closer to us than we think. And as some of you know, I've been moved to make a difference on this topic ever since I met film producer from Hollywood, Conroy Cantor, who produced a film called Trafficked, all about the $1.5 billion industry of sex trafficking. Before that, I thought this was an issue that was mainly overseas or only affected women and girls in in really challenging circumstances, but nobody I know would ever be impacted. But what I learned from this film and about this industry is that all of us can be impacted in some way. And this is a horrible business. And this is a business. What makes this business go is dollars. Uh, It is a, a huge, huge enterprise. And I think that the, the topic is becoming more and more in the public eye with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, et cetera. And thank goodness for um, those cases that are bringing it more to our attention. But today we're going to talk to an inspirational leader who is taking this to the next level uh, by running Saving Innocence in LA. He has been involved in working with several over many, many victims and survivors based in LA. And he leads a team of 32 people as the executive director. And Alan Smith published a book recently called Men Fight for Me. And I've read this book cover to cover. It is a very powerful book about men's role in helping to end sex trafficking. This is not just a problem for girls and women. This is a problem that men need to tackle and fight for those victims and survivors. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Alan Smith. Well, uh, hello, Laura. Thank you so much for having me on your on your podcast. It's an honor to be here and looking forward to this conversation. It is my pleasure. Now, Alan, tell me how you ended up with Saving Innocence. How does your organization help survivors? Yeah, well, I was going another direction really my entire life. Uh, I've just been with Saving Innocence for six years. And so my entire adult life before that, I was with an organization called Young Life. And that was a faith-based organization that worked with all kids everywhere, reaching out to kids and summer camps and mentoring and different things that we were doing with kids. And I certainly had trafficked victims, survivors come through Young Life. I just didn't know it at the time. I didn't have the language. I didn't have the eyes, the understanding of it all. And so after 25 years on the Young Life staff, um, it was time to do something different, a a different challenge, a different season. And I had heard about Saving Innocence the year previous to me leaving Young Life staff. Um, And I thought what most people thought, and you just alluded to it a moment ago, when I heard about uh, trafficking victims, child trafficking victims, I was thinking it was they were doing work in Thailand or someplace like that because that's all I heard about. That's what most people think. It's someplace over there. It doesn't affect us. It's 10,000 miles away. And when I learned that it was no right here in our communities, in our zip codes with our own kids, um, that 
stuck in my mind. And so when I left Young Life, I cold called Saving Innocence <laughs> and I cold texted, as a matter of fact, and met with the founder, heard the two hour version of what was going on. And now I'm a dad with a daughter and little boys are impacted as well. But uh, I do believe uh, that dads who have daughters feel this slightly differently. You don't have to be a dad. You don't have to have a daughter to care about this. But dads with daughters, because the, the largest you know, population percentage of the kids that are uh, sucked into this horror are little girls. And uh, that, that meant I was immediately in to do something. And I didn't know what it was. And we just kept talking. And I, I landed with Saving Innocence. They offered me to join their team. And I uh, haven't looked back since. Um, so is my car basically drove itself to the front door of saving innocence when I, I was time for a career change. And I had no idea this even existed until, you know, like moments before, uh, what does saving innocence do? Um, we're, we're an 11 year old anti-trafficking agency. We're based in Los Angeles and, um, we've got a team of these rock star advocate case managers that are on call around the clock, around the night, 24, seven. And we're contracted by the county to be first responders when they recover what appears to be a child victim of sex trafficking. That's our niche. So there's international, there's domestic, there's children and adults, there's sex trafficking and labor trafficking are generally the big buckets you think about. Our focus has been child victims of sex trafficking, the worst of the worst. Now, there's no good version of human trafficking, but it's absolutely horrific. And so we go out and um, respond and receive that child into our care and walk with her as long as it takes until she doesn't need us anymore. And that typically is maybe eight months, 12 months, maybe two years. Uh, the long haul, we're walking with these kids, doing everything we can and get them everything they need. That's the short version of all of that. I have goosebumps hearing that. It's just so horrendous. But I always say that, and you alluded to this in your book, how there's some people that just don't want to hear it, right? And you said that when you were telling some of your buddies what you were doing, one of them said, you know, spare me the details, yeah. right? Yeah, right. Um, but I say that those are ostriches, right? Even though this is painful to the ears and the brain and the soul, we need to hear it. Otherwise, we're not going to be moved to action, right, Ellen? Well, absolutely. We have to have enough courage to look at this crime of what's happening. If we just turn a blind eye and pretend it's not happening, or maybe be aware vaguely that it's something is happening kind of in this general idea, but if we're not willing to step into it and we're not willing to look at it closely and deal with it, it's going to continue to be the fastest growing crime in the world, the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. And that's just unacceptable. And in my particular uh, calling and niche is to speak directly to men to get involved in that fight. Beautiful. So in simple terms, how does this trafficking business work and what do we as society need to know about what's happening here? Yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the first thing we just alluded to is that we have to acknowledge that it's happening. Uh, how in the world can we fix something that we don't acknowledge even exists? If we're not willing to say this is happening, how can we possibly find a remedy to it um, if we're not willing to go down that path? So that's step number one. How is it happening is kind of a bigger question. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's going to require a bunch of really broken people, and most of them are men, to get to the place where they're going to treat other human beings as subhuman. These trafficking victims are treated as subhuman. They're not treated like human beings. They're not given the same sort of rights and privileges that a basic human existence should require. 
They're treated like a commodity. They're bought and sold 10, 15 times every single day for some sort of perverted sexual experience with somebody. Treated like an absolute commodity, bought and sold, marked, branded, to uh, tell who owns them, all those kinds of things. So that's what's happening. They're being treated like a something to be a product to be sold. And they're preying on the traffickers are preying on the most vulnerable uh, because they're the most available. So you think about um, exploitation. That's a word that's in the title, the subtitle of the book. Uh, if you if you sort of look up and uh, look at a dictionary, there's a lot of different kind of ways that that word is, is discussed and thought about. But it's basically uh, you're going to exploit a situation or a person or a, or a thing for your own benefit, your own gain. And there's not every one of those connotations is terrible. Like in sports, you know, the NFL is wrapping up their regular season and start the playoffs here pretty quick. And every coach and every player is looking at the film and they're studying the vulnerabilities of the other, of the other side of the ball. And so that they can exploit them and exploit the vulnerabilities and score a touchdown. Well, what happens if these vulnerabilities that are being exploited are, are those of children, a children's vulnerability and availability. And there, right there, is the soil in which human trafficking and child trafficking is growing out of. It's people preying on the most vulnerable in our society. And that tends to be children. It tends to be children who have already experienced a lot of abuse in their life, a lot of sexual abuse and other kinds of abuse. And so they're conditioned um, to think certain things are more acceptable than they should because that's their only experience. That's what they've lived so far. Again, that's a shorter version of all that, but um, that's what's happening in our midst uh, in a worldwide epidemic of human trafficking. So obviously you were moved to, to write Men Fight For Me, and you actually co-authored it uh, with Jessica Midkiff, uh, who is a survivor herself. Her story is woven in the book, mm -hmm. um, as well as some other survivors' stories. Can you tell us more about what led you to write this book with Jessica and how we can get our hands on it for those who want to read it or experience what you have to say. Yeah. What led me to do it when I came to Saving Innocence six years ago, there was a couple of things that were really very obvious to me. One is uh, the biggest part of this problem is men. Most of the buyers are men. Most of the sellers, the traffickers are men, not all, but most. Most of the victims are young girls. Uh, when I would go somewhere to some sort of a meeting or some sort of a training or some sort of an event, I would look around. It's like, where are all the men? There's, there's hardly any men here, if any. And that really bothered me for a while. Um, and, and then I was at an event and, uh, and Jessica, my co-author, was speaking on a panel along with a woman named Rachel, who in chapter three of the book tells her story in her first person version. And that's where, the, that's where the title of the book came from. She said something that changed the trajectory of my life. Now, I was already in. I was already at Saving Innocence, but it lit a fire in a new way because she was telling her story of her exploitation and her trafficking. And she said, after five months, uh, I basically gave up. I could no longer fight for myself. I needed someone to fight for me. And that's where the fight for me part in the title of the book came from. That that fired me up because it's like, OK, I have a backstage pass. I now see things that other men don't see. I know things that other men don't know. I'm aware of things that other men aren't aware of. And now I have a trafficking survivor looking me in the eye, a crowded room. But I felt like she was talking right to me saying I needed someone to fight for me. 
I thought, I'll fight for you. I'll use my voice any way I can. And so at that moment, I resolved and I, and I met with Jessica and a number of other survivors there in the book. I said, here's what's in my mind, on my mind. Uh, men are the biggest part of the problem. I'm a man. They'll hear from me in a way that maybe they won't hear from, from women or other people because I can speak to them man to man. And that's where the essence of the book came. A friend said, you should write a book on that. I said, well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, and, you know, it, it was sort of the idea that if you, if you can define and isolate a particular problem, whatever it is, whether it's something medically related or just whatever the problem might be, if you, if you know what the problem is, you now have the ability and the possibility of creating a solution. And so this is very, very clear. Men are the problem. Great. We're 50% there. That means men are also the solution. So that motivated me to write this book, to have it not just be a man talking to a man, but have it be survivor informed and co-authored so that they bring it to life. And uh, that's the essence of how it came into being. And where can we get it? We start a little website yeah. called fightforme.net. If you go to fightforme.net, you can buy the book there. It's for sale on Amazon, so you don't have to go there. But we are sending everybody to, to that website because we have the biographies of, the, uh, of all of the survivors that are in it, uh, clicks to their websites and their resources. There's a, there's a book list to, to look at, contributors. Uh, there was a YouTube channel linked there. And we've done interviews like this with all these various survivors um, speaking about what's happening. And, and uh, we're kind of putting out little episodes just to keep the conversation alive. So go to fightforme.net, buy the book there, but also poke around and see what else you can find there that might be helpful for the conversation. Great. And will it be audio as, as well in the future? Yeah, we, we definitely will do that at some point. Currently it's Kindle and paperback book, and uh, we're going to go audio, put it on Audible as soon as we can get that done. Wonderful. So how are men in your life, in your network, and on social media reacting to this so far? You know, it's been really encouraging. There's, uh, there's a lot of men around our country, and, and now we're getting into Canada, so we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of your uh, listeners are there. But there's been a lot of men who are um, influenced with other men. They, they lead men's groups or men's efforts. And one in particular on the East Coast has bought cases of these books and he had me write a little letter and that he in included the letter in every one of these books. And they're giving them out to all the men that they that they're reaching out to that are on the streets or wherever they wherever they are. Um, there's been other men in other places of our country that um, are saying this is exactly what we needed. There isn't anything like this. So I've, I've received a lot of really great feedback. And um, now you mentioned that earlier, I do recount uh, one of my close friends for a lot of years. Didn't want to hear the details. And, and some of those some of the, some of my good buddies. I've given them copies of the book. They're, they're having a hard time sitting down and reading it. I'm not sure what that is. Um, you know, so there, there is a category of, of men and people in general that don't want to step this close because it's maybe it's too difficult of content. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And so that's the challenge to get men and everyone, but men to slow down long enough, um, dig into the content of this book and let it begin to change some behaviors and thoughts in the way that they act. And uh, I've received a lot of great feedback uh, and it's been very encouraging to, to sum it up. And I really feel people need a, a call to action once they hear and experience this content by reading it or by watching it in film. And I've seen that firsthand through Conroy's film Trafficked after people watch it, they wanna know what they can do. They're horrified that it's in their own city, 
and they want to know what to do. So I really appreciate how you have a whole section about what to do, yeah. organized into you know big things that can be done and little things that can be done in our own families and communities. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, again, just awareness for the sake of awareness doesn't really help that much. And so there has to be a call to action and a practical uh, road to um, take people down. And so, yeah, in the book, there's a, I think, chapter eight, it's called Looking in the Mirror, and there's macro and micro. There's the big stuff that's going to take a long time to, to you know, enact, and there's little stuff you can do today. I think there's a, in the back of the appendix, in appendices, there's a 12 things you can do today, like right now. You can do them today. It's that quick. <laughs> and so, um, you know, when someone says, what can I do? I say, I don't know. What can you do? Do that. Do the thing that you can do. Like you're having me on your podcast. Thank you for doing that. That's phenomenal. That's what you can do. Now, what can other people do? Everyone who's listening right now has something that they can do. We need everybody to focus whatever it is, their gifts, their skills, their talents, their finances, their energies on this issue. We need, it's all hands on deck. And we just need people to do whatever it is that they can do. And then it'll, we'll, we'll make a big step forward. Absolutely. So, so thank you for doing this. I think as women, we need to be challenging the men in our lives, including our sons at a certain age, to read this book. And I think yeah. if, if it's posed as a challenge versus a, yeah. hey, you should read this. People don't like to be told what to do, but a challenge. I challenge you, see if you can get through this. I, I, I wrote a, a little note in one of these books that I was giving a friend of mine who he wanted to give it to his pastor. And I wrote to the guy, I said, I dare you to read this book. Call me when you're done. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I mentioned earlier, I think off air to you that, that my goal in writing this book was to give enough of the hard stuff to grab everybody's attention, but not so much that, you know, everyone stops reading because it's too heavy. I believe it's appropriately heavy. I think there's enough in there and people telling their stories to get our attention, but honestly, we couldn't, we couldn't even scratch the surface and make it at all digestible. The, the horrendousness, if that's a word, of this crime being perpetrated on children is off the chart, and we have to stand up as a society, as a humanity, and say no more, not on my watch. And my call is to all you men that are listening right now, or you ladies that are listening, forward this episode um, to the men in your life and uh, buy them this book and start the conversation because if it's going to go away, it's gonna go away because enough men stood up and said, no more. We're not gonna allow this any longer. Well put, really, really well put. Now, in this book, you use the word victim um, a fair bit. I'm curious about victim versus survivor and the choice of, of those terms. I mean, as we're talking about it in society. Yeah. Um, Jessica and I, my co-author, actually, we had, we had that exact conversation. There's a chapter uh, in the middle of the book, we call it the big three, and there's the traffickers, the buyers, and then the victims. And we thought, should we use that word victim? Um, in our context, in my context of saving innocence, and so much of the, the victims of this crime are children, are minors. And you can't consent to a felony being perpetrated against you. That's, that's against the law, that, that, that's not a thing. So at some level, at the deepest level, something bad is being done to a minor, to another person, and they are a victim of that. They didn't choose that. It's not their choice. They didn't go to the third grade job fair where you can, hey, should I be a veterinarian? Should I be a doctor? Should I be a business person? Should I be a firefighter? Oh, should I be a, a, a child abuse survivor? 
You know, should I should I do that? Should I go be quote a prostitute, which is the legal term of adults? So we chose the word, use the word victim um, in this. Uh, we don't live and sit in that word long um, because they are survivors. They're on their way out, and we're helping them get there. But it there is something done being done to them. So at some level, they are a victim. Okay. I get it. And I actually got my wrist slapped in front of a theater by a sex trafficking um, organization, kind of like Saving Innocence, but out here um, for using the word prostitute. And I appreciated being slapped on the wrist in front of the audience because I didn't know any better that prostitute is actually not a right. term. <laughs> like it's, it's not a term you should use. And why is that, Alan? Well, the term prostitute suggests choice. It suggests my my career path. It's, it suggests something I'm doing on my own uh, decision. Um, and it's a derogatory term in, in, in most senses of that. And these, let, let me back up. There's two categories. There, absolutely, there's no such thing as a child prostitute. We cannot refer to children as prostitutes. They can't because they can't consent to the crime being committed against them. So absolutely not. That's a hard stop. Um, the adult version of exploitation and trafficking, it's a legal term that most uh, governments and, and you know police and whatnot will, they'll use that term. And so sometimes you're forced to use that term so that everyone knows what you're talking about. But we on the inside of the work, we would um, constantly reframe language that's just one of the words that we're going to reframe we reframe a lot of language and that's that's helpful in getting society's mind around what's happening so yeah the, the basic sense of it is there's ex victims of exploitation there's there's uh, people that have been uh, assaulted there's people that have been raped there's people that have been uh, exploited in various ways um and to dumb it down to using an outdated term like prostitute would give the wrong idea and so i think that's generally speaking why most people are on the inside are going away from that. Great. I think that's a really good point for people to hear in this episode, because I still think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, yeah. It's easier to think it's a choice for people, because then you can kind of judge them, right? And put them into a category. Yes. Um, and it's just easier, then you don't have to take any uh, responsibility around doing something about it. <laughs> I'm just getting animated. My Timer fell, but speaking of time, I just have a few more minutes on this uh, part one of this very important episode. And I want to explore with you authentic masculinity because that's in the title of your book, The Role of Authentic Masculinity in Ending Sexual Exploitation and Trafficking. So what is authentic masculinity and who are your greatest role models, either alive or passed away, that really, you know, showcase authentic masculinity, Alan? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And in chapter four of the book, it's entitled Man to Man. I go through it in detail and I give a definition. Here's what a real man is. And um, I invite all the readers to come up with their own definition. And so the idea is if, they're, if we're going to call something authentic, that means there must be an inauthentic version. There must be a, a diminished, a counterfeit version, if you will. And so our little boys are inundated with song lyrics, with media messaging, movies, TV, all those things. And they are projecting a false version of and an unhealthy version of masculinity, one that diminishes, one that oppresses, one that's building the kingdom of themselves, not others. And, and so now we have our young men growing up thinking it's okay to treat women like, 
like things, like sexual objects. It's okay to do that because that's what they're inundated with in the media messaging and the song lyrics from all the popular, uh, you know, singers and rappers. So we felt, and I feel like it's really critical to push against that and give a healthy version of masculinity, an authentic version of masculinity, the kind of masculinity that brings hope and healing and uh, builds up rather than tears down. And so just quickly, and you can read the book and read all about it. You already did. I know, Laura, but um, there's four pillars that uh, that we define me and some buddies as we worked with our young boys as they were growing up. Uh, an authentic masculine, an authentically masculine, healthy version of a male. Number one, accepts responsibility. He accepts the responsibility that's given to him and maybe some that aren't given to him. He's going to step into and take responsibility for what's happening in his community, in his world, in his family. Uh, two, he leads courageously. And now you can be afraid of something and still be courageous. It's the ability to go through and work through the fear and still cause you to act in the right way, which is uh, courage. So he accepts responsibility. He leads courageously. He lives a life of service. That's pillar number three. He's out serving his community. He's serving his family. He's serving the world. Those are the markings of an authentically healthy masculine male. And then the fourth one is he understands that who he is on the inside is more important than what he does on the outside. Who he is, his character, his integrity, all those kinds of things are more important than whatever job they're doing, whatever fame or not fame they might have or anything, uh, whatever's in their bank account, all of that is secondary to who they are on the inside. So that's our working definition of um, authentic masculinity, someone who's practicing those four pillars, someone who's uh, living those out however they can, and for those of you dads out there and you're raising young boys, you can use those four if you like them. If you want to add one, take one away, switch it up. But give your child, give your son a gift, the gift of clarity, because the, the world is confusing. What does it mean to be a man? Is it a certain age? Is it a certain time that, you know, they get married? Is it whenever they have sex? Does that make them a man? Give them the gift of clarity. Here's what it means, son, to be a man. These four pillars. And we're going to practice them. We're going to look at them. We're going to think about them. I'm going to celebrate him when I see him. We're going to correct you when we don't see him. And uh, that's what I mean by authentic masculinity. And what's the second part of the question? I'm sorry, Laura. <laughs> no, that's, that's a great answer, uh, by the way. But any role models that have really oh. inspired you in this? And I think you are an inspirer in being authentically masculine, by the way, Alan. So thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, that's a, I, I actually saw that question earlier and I gave that some thought. I don't know that I saw it lived out in another person the way that I just expressed it um, as a young man growing up um, in the in the book. I do quote a lot of different, um, you know, kind of famous or fairly famous people. And, and at each chapter of Guinea Beach chapter is different quotes. And and I also quote a bunch of movies, as you know, I'm kind of a big movie guy. And, and uh, I love a lot of the movie characters. So I, 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 I state in the book, my all time favorite movie is Braveheart. And uh, William Wallace was an actual real life historical character the movie is based on. Now, I don't know how close the movie is on his actual life, but he's a real guy that fought against uh, injustices. He fought against an, an, an army, an enemy that's bigger than himself. He did all those things. And so when I see those characteristics, that's a role model for authentic masculinity. I'm sure he had lots of reasons why maybe he wasn't, a, <laughs> you know, didn't have it all together. But in terms of what's portrayed in history with him, uh, he would be one role model that I, as men, let's find a fight and a battle bigger than ourselves. And I got one for you right here. It's called Human Trafficking. 
the other one, I, I quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an old German theologian. Uh, he actually attempted to assassinate Adolf Hitler. <laughs> um, and I don't know, you know what everyone thinks of that necessarily, except he saw an injustice. He saw something evil. He saw something wrong. And he was doing what he could do to, uh, to end that. And so in some ways, at least that characteristic is somewhat of a role model uh, that has inspired me. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for all that you've shared today about this topic that many want to ostrich from, but is so important uh, to get involved with and make a difference in terms of ending it. Raising awareness is step one, and actually taking steps to end it is the bigger step here. That uh, men in particular, men and boys, need to be on that, that wagon. Um, full force. So thank you for that, Alan. Um, I'm delighted that we covered this ground. And in part two, in two weeks, we're going to continue the discussion about uh, sex trafficking um, of children and what we can be doing about it more specifically. Um, and we'll talk about work-life wellness and how you stay well when you're dealing with such a horrendous topic on a daily basis. So we will explore that further. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today on Where Work Meets Life. I'm passionate about sharing insights from experts around the world on topics at the intersection of where work meets life. If you found this podcast useful, please share with others who may benefit and engage with us on social media. For more articles, information, and tips, sign up for my monthly newsletter at my website, drlaura.live. This podcast summary contains links to the psychology practice I founded, Work Evolution, Canada Career Counseling, and Synthesis Psychology, as well as my current employer, Humans, a nationwide organizational psychology firm focusing on culture and performance. Stay well.